Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again on this uh, last of the meetings. But not only today, but as we go forward, particularly uh, Holy Week beginning next week, because it's so appropriate in a way for us to kind of examine what we've learned, what we are, where we are, and where we're headed. So help us then to open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us, not only through Holy Scripture, but all the sharings uh, that we will have today. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. I, I wanted to get right into chapters 13 and 14, but... Before we did that, for those of you who were at Mass this morning, did you recognize the readings? (laughs) And did you recognize how they relate to the Gospel? You know, the whole idea of, and for those of you who weren't at Mass, you know, uh, I'll bless you now. The uh, first reading was from Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 3, including the long prayer that's in chapter 3, which was the responsorial psalm for today's Mass. And, of course, the subject matter was uh, the requirement of the uh, three companions of Daniel to uh, worship the golden uh, statue that's in chapter 3. And, of course, they refused uh, because... Uh, they are obeying the laws of God uh, and worshiping no one except God himself. Uh, the gospel, of course, is really the same way. Jesus is admonishing uh, the Pharisees and the temple uh, rulers because what they are doing is worshiping the law rather than God. And he's trying to get them to see that, and they don't. Uh, but that's part of the problem. As I've said before, when the Jewish people were exiled in Babylon back in the 6th century, it was because of their uh, sinfulness and their waywardness and neglect of God. And so God left them alone and they were conquered by the Babylonians and carted off. They couldn't understand why. They were carted off. Why did God leave them? Why did, you know, why, uh, did they fall into such misery and so forth and so on? But finally, through the prophet Ezekiel, uh, they came to realize why, and they sort of got the message and got religion, and they resolved that when they got back home, uh, if and when, uh, that they were going to change. And they did. For a while, they took the book of Deuteronomy, but then they took it so literally. The book of Deuteronomy is often referred to as the book of the law because it summarizes most of the law, uh, the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, and uh, where it came from. Unfortunately, they went to the other extreme. They observed the law so much that it was the law that they were worshiping rather than the God of the law, all right? And, of course, that's the argument uh, that Jesus is presenting in the gospel. 
there is only one God and our obedience to him is the utmost of utmost importance okay and so that's the overall message really that we should get out of this book of Daniel the whole idea is regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in it should always be God first unfortunately being human beings we have a tendency to uh, fret and be concerned about how things affect us even when we get into some of the really serious problems of life the first thing is well how is that going to affect me and how am I going to handle this thus and so our first inclination should be to get down on our knees and ask God's help okay I think I told you a little story the other day when I uh, tried to get into the lower drawer of my stove. Did I tell you that story? Well, you know how you tuck away things in drawers and so forth, and then when you go to open the drawer, it won't open because something inside jammed up against the top, you know? And uh, so I had that happen. I kept I keep pots and pans in the lower drawer in the stove, and I went to open it wouldn't open I tried everything it wouldn't open you know and uh, finally it came to my senses here I am teaching that we should turn to God for all these things and I haven't done that so I said Lord help me I need something out of this drawer I'm going to have company and I need stuff out of here help me I have tried everything it dawned on me at that moment to call my son-in-law who you know seems to be able to resolve most of anything but he lives 12 miles away and this was like 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening I thought I, I know he's up so I'll give him a call I called him on his cell phone he said well gee dad I'm only about a mile away from your place and he says I'll come right over and it just happened that he had to stop by a restaurant where he had left his glasses at lunchtime and he was there in a few minutes and within a few minutes he had the door drawer open so you see how God can work even in foolish things like that uh, so uh, keep that in mind particularly when you get into a real tough spot don't say oh woe is me and how am I going to handle this ask for help all right, that's what it's all about. Any questions before we get going? All right. Now, chapters 13 and 14, uh, if you read them right on the surface, so to speak, you say, well, you know, nice little stories. Um, 13, the, the story of uh, Susanna and, the, pardon the expression, the two dirty old men. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it, it's a nice little story, and it's what we would kind of consider a, a fable in a way. And how does it fit into the rest of uh, this book? So, you know, especially compared to some of the more serious things. But if you read it carefully, uh, I think you'll see something a little different than what's on the surface. I'm going to erase this. I'm sure all of you had had a chance to look at my Rembrandt here, so. 
Well, just a moment here. I know I do have. I want you to look at um, Susanna represents the faithful Jewish people, okay? And uh, the, the two elders as I've mentioned before the whole problem that started uh, this was the forced Hellenization the Greek culture by the conquerors, that is, an Antioch led by Antiochus IV, upon the Jewish people, all right? But Hellenization was attractive to many of the Jewish people who weren't real strong in their faith. And so some of the good things, and I can't say that everything in the Hellenization culture was bad, uh, you know, the whole idea of education and uh, commerce and progress in uh, studying and so forth uh, was a good thing. The bad thing, of course, was the forced uh, departure from their faith, the Jewish faith, and to embody or embrace the uh, polytheistic faiths of the Greek people. Uh, particularly worshipping all kinds of uh, gods and statues and idols and everything else. So that was really the problem there. Um, the two elders then represent the Jewish people who took and assumed some of the Hellenization cultures. So the, uh, we will call these the unfaithful. That's what the writer is trying to get the readers, the Jewish people, to see. That there is a problem here represented by Susanna, the faithful, and the two elders, the unfaithful Jews. All right? So we're not really talking about Antiochus the Fourth directly. We're talking about some of the results of his enforcement of the Hellenization culture. Okay. So let's, let's begin a little explanation here. So see if you can sort of keep this in mind as we go along. Okay. In Babylon, alright, now we're going to talk about the whole idea of Babylon as being the, uh, scenery or these are the location of all of these stories but in reality that is not the case and why all right in Babylon there lived a man named Joachim who married a very beautiful and God-fearing woman Susanna 
the daughter of Hilkiah. Hilkiah was one of the good kings of the Jewish monarchy uh, some years before. It just happened to be a coincidence here. Her pious parents had trained uh, their daughter according to the law of Moses. Joachim was very rich. He had a garden near his house, and the Jews had recourse to him often because he was the most respected of them all. Now, as I mentioned before, you would think, well, if the Jews were uh, slaves in, in Babylon, but they weren't slaves in the way we have a, uh, we think of slaves, all right? They were indentured servants, and many of them became very wealthy uh, because of their... Um, contribution, you might say, of some various uh, talents uh, to the Babylonian people. So this was not uncommon. That year, two elders of the people were appointed judges, of whom the Lord said, Wickedness has come out of Babylon, from the elders who were to govern the people as judges. These men, to whom all broke, brought their cases, frequented the house of Joachim. When the people left at noon, Susanna used to enter the, her husband's garden for a walk. And when the old men saw her enter every day for her walk, they began to lust after her. Sounds like Jimmy Carter. They suppressed their consciences. They would not allow their eyes to look to heaven. and did not keep in mind just judgments. Though both were enamored of her, they did not tell each other their trouble, for they were ashamed to reveal their lustful desire to have her. Day by day they watched eagerly for her. One day they said to each other, Let us be off uh, for home. It is time for lunch. So they're going to tell each other they're going to depart. But each one sort of goes off, you know, into a different direction and returns to the same place. Uh, but both turned back. And when they met again, they asked each other the reason. They admitted their lusts to each other. And then they agreed to look for an occasion when they could meet her alone. One day while they, you see... None of this sort of gets wrapped up in this directly. But the people reading this at the time it was written, back in the second century, during the uh, troublesome days of uh, the persecution by Antiochus IV, would kind of automatically understand that. Remember, uh, stories of this kind were very important to these people. It was not only uh, intended for education, but it was intended for entertainment and discussion. Something like the parables, you might say, that Jesus told later on at his time. They were stories intended to have a moral point to them. And, of course, this moral point really is fidelity not only to God, but in this case, uh, to spouse. One day while they were waiting for the right moment, she entered the garden as usual with two maids only. She decided to bathe, for the weather was warm. Nobody else was there except the two elders, 
who had hidden themselves and were watching her. Bring me oil and soap, she said to the maids, and shut the garden doors while I bathe. They did as she said. They shut the garden doors and left by the side gate to fetch what she had ordered, unaware that the elders were hidden inside. As soon as the maids had left, the two old, <laughs> the two dirty old men got up and hurried to her. Look, they said, the garden doors are shut. No one can see us. Give in to our desire and lie with us. If you refuse, we will testify against you that you dismissed your maids because a young man was here with you. Ooh. I am completely trapped, Susanna groaned. If I yield, it will be my death. If I refuse, I cannot escape your power. And you see, getting into this section here, you had a number of people say, well, you know, a lot of what is being forced upon us is good. So why shouldn't we participate in some of that? Why can't we take over and change our ways to the ways of the Greeks? And of course, those who were strongly uh, in favor of retaining their traditions and so forth set up problems between each other. So you had a lot of interaction here, and it wasn't always pretty. Then Susanna shrieked, and the old men also shouted at her as one of them ran to open the garden door. When the people in the house heard the cries from the garden, they rushed in by the side gate to see what happened at her. At the accusations by the old men, the servants felt very much ashamed, for never had such things been said about Susanna. When the people came to her husband, Joachim, the next day, the two wicked elders also came, fully determined to put Susanna to death. Before all the people, they ordered, send for Susanna, the daughter of Hilkiah, the wife of Joachim. When she was sent for, she came with her parents, children, and all her relatives. Susanna, very delicate and beautiful, was veiled. But those wicked men ordered her to remove her face so as to um, sate themselves with her beauty. Uh, they haven't given up yet. Uh, all her relatives and the onlookers were weeping. In the midst of the people, the two elders rose up and laid their hands on her head, which, of course, was a sign of power over her. Always in Jewish culture, the laying on of hands was a sign of power, and in some cases, transmitting power or receiving or getting power back. In fact, we still have that today when the priests are ordained or deacons are ordained the bishop lays his hands on the head uh, of the candidate as a sign of transmitting the power of the church from the deacon to I mean from the bishop uh, to the priest or the deacon okay not that the bishop is giving up power he's transmitting some of the church's power 
uh, to that person. Okay. In the midst of the people, the two elders rose up and laid their hands on her head. Uh, through her tears, she looked to heaven, for she trusted in the Lord wholeheartedly. The elders made this accusation. As we were walking in the garden alone, this woman entered uh, with two girls and shut the doors of the garden, dismissing the girls. A young man who was hidden there came and lay with her. When we in a corner of the garden saw this crime, we ran toward them. We saw them lying together, but the man we could not hold because he was stronger than we. He opened uh, the doors and ran off. And then he, then we seized this one and asked who the young man was, but she refused to tell us. We testified to this. The assembly believed them, since they were elders and judges of the people, but they condemned her to death. But Susanna cried aloud, O eternal God, you know what is hidden and are aware of all things before they come to be. You know that they have testified falsely against me. Here I am about to die, though I have done none of the things with which these wicked men have charged me. Now, if these two men were truly elders and honest in their own right, they would realize, because they were educated men, that false testimony was against one of the commandments. Okay? Thou shalt not bear false witness. And that's, of course, exactly what they're doing here. So they're just wrong right from the beginning. But they were wrong by lusting in their hearts to begin with. Okay. The Lord heard her prayer. And as she was being led to execution, there's another fallacy there. The Jewish people had no right to execute anyone. That was also against their law. They had a prohibition against capital punishment, and yet we've heard many, many stories of one killing another. Okay? And yet, um, that also is against one of the commandments. God stirred up the Holy Spirit of a young boy named Daniel. Young boy, uh, and that is why in if this book is in Hebrew scriptures, if it is in, it generally is not, because it was written in Greek and added at the time of the Septuagint com, uh, compilation. But if it is in there, it's always in considered the first chapter, all right, solely because of that word, young boy, right there, all right. <clears throat> Uh, the Lord heard prayer, and as she was being led to execution, God stirred up the Holy Spirit of a young boy named Daniel, and he cried aloud, I will have no part in the death of this woman. All the people turned and asked him, What is this you are saying? He stood in their midst and continued, Are you such fools, O Israelites, to condemn a woman of Israel without ex examination? Um, and without clear evidence, return to court, for they have testified false, falsely against her. It's unusual in a way that 
the people wouldn't even listen to him. Because if he was a young boy, uh, the rule of the culture was that nobody under the age of 30 would be given any credence and listened to in this way. So you got a little problem here. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that's part of the story. Okay. Then all the people returned in haste to Dan- uh, in haste. To Daniel, the elders said, Come, sit with us, inform us, since God has given you the prestige of old age. But he replied, Separate these two from one, one from the other, that I may examine them. And this is a common thing that's even used today when you have uh, crimes committed by a pair or two. They are always separated before they are cross-examined. Okay. After they were separated one from the other, he called one of them and said, Have you, have you grown evil with age? Now, have your past sins come to term, passing unjust sentences, condemning the innocent, and uh, freeing the guilty? Although the Lord says, the innocent and the just you shall not put to death, right? Now then, if you were a witness, tell me, under what tree did you see them together? Under a mastic tree, he answered. A mastic tree is relatively small. A decorative tree. Uh, your fine lie has cost you your head, said Daniel, for the angel of God shall receive the sentence from him and split you in two. Putting him to one side, he ordered the other one to be brought. Offspring of Canaan, not of Judah. Daniel said to him, Beauty has seduced you. Lust has subverted your conscience. And this is how you acted with the daughters of Israel. And in their fear, they yielded to you. But a daughter of Judah did not tolerate your wickedness. Now then, tell me under what tree you surprised them together. Under an oak tree, a very large tree. He said, your fine lie has cost you also your head, said Daniel. For the angel of God awaits with a word to cut you in two so as to make an end of you both. The whole assembly cried aloud, Blessed God who saves those who hope in him. They arose up against the two elders, for by their own words Daniel had convicted them of perjury. According to the law of Moses, they inflict on them the penalty they had plotted to impose on their neighbor. They put them to death. Thus was Innocent blood spared. My hero. Hilkiah and his wife praised God for their daughter Susanna, as did Joachim, her husband, and all her relatives, because she was found innocent of and any <coughs> excuse me, she was found innocent of any shameful deed. And from that day onward, Daniel was greatly esteemed by the people. Nice little story, but I said, if, can, can you see now in the background the difference here? Yeah. That's what it's intended to, to show. All right. uh, that the Jewish people are encouraged to remain faithful and obedient to God, even though 
they might have to endure hardship of some kind. And those who have left the Jewish faith to embrace uh, their Greek cultures uh, will be faced with that unless they repent. So, uh, I, you know, it's a, it's a nice little story uh, and the message is rather clear. So we have to take that to heart uh, and to see how and what in our life is preventing us to giving ourselves wholeheartedly uh, to God. Any questions on that little story? Okay, so you all just really got it, man. Good. All right, well, let's go on to a, a couple other little stories here. After King Astasia was laid with his fathers, Cyrus the Persian succeeded uh, to his kingdom. Daniel was the king's favorite and was held in higher esteem than any of the friends of the king. The Babylonians had an idol called Bel, and after and every day they provided for it six barrels of fine flour, forty sheep, and six measures of wine. Quite a bit. Forty sheep. The king worshipped the idol bell and went every day to adore it. But Daniel adored only his God. When the king asked him, why do you not adore bell? Daniel replied, because I worship not idols made with hands, but only the living God who made heaven and earth and has dominion over all mankind. And then the king continued, Do you not think Bel is a living God? Do you not see how much he eats and drinks every day? He's not, he's not a God, he's a pig. Yeah, a big one, yes. Daniel began to laugh. Do not be deceived, O king, he said. It is only clay inside and bronze outside. It has never taken any food or drink. Enraged, the king called to his priests and said to them, Unless you tell me who it is that consumes these provisions, you shall die. But if you shall show that Bel consumes them, Daniel shall die for blaspheming Bel. Daniel said to the king, Let it be as you say. There were 70 priests of Bel, besides their wives and children. Well, you know, you divide uh, all of that stuff up, and um, it provides a pretty nice meal for each one. When the king went with Daniel into the temple of Bel, the priest of Bel said, See, we are going to leave. Do you, O king, set out the food and prepare the wine? Then shut the door and seal it with your ring. If you do not find that Bell has eaten it all when you return in the morning, we are to die. Otherwise, Daniel shall die for his lies against us. They were not perturbed, because under the table 
they had made a secret entrance through which they always came uh, to consume the food. I hope they cleaned up the place afterward. After they departed, the king set the food before Bel, while Daniel ordered his servants to bring some ashes, which they scattered through the whole temple. The king alone was present. And then they went outside, sealed and closed the door with the king's ring, and departed. The priests entered that night as usual, with their wives and children, and they ate and drank and had a good time. Early the next morning, the king came with Daniel. Are the seals unbroken, Daniel, he asked, and Daniel answered, They are unbroken, O king. As soon as he opened the door, the king looked at the table and cried, Great are you, O Bel, there is no trickery in you. But Daniel laughed and kept the king from entering. Look at the floor, he said. Whose footprints are these? I see footprints of men, women, and children, said the king. The angry king arrests the priests, their wives and their children. They showed him the secret door by which they used to enter to consume what was used on the table. He put them to death and handed uh, Bell over to Daniel, who destroyed it and its temple. Oh, my. Okay. Um, I was hard-pressed, really, to think about how does this relate, you know, to the troubles of the Jewish people at this particular time. And really, the only thing that you can get out of this is the fact that uh, worshipping idols of all kinds gets you nowhere. I mean, that is uh, a handmade thing and is obviously um, wrong to worship any statue, uh, artifact of any kind. Uh, it is only worshipping the one true God that can really get you anywhere. Um, now, some people do take uh, to extremes the veneration of statues and pictures and so forth. They should only be used really as a remembrance or a reminder in the same way that you have pictures of uh, relatives, family, friends, etc. You don't <clears throat> worship and kiss the, the pictures and so forth. Uh, they are used to remind you of the love and the relationship that you had or have, still have with such people. And that's what we're trying to depict here. That in this time uh, of persecution by Antiochus IV and his uh, Greek followers and some of the Jewish people that went over to his side, uh, they are going to be uh, punished in one way or the other. So there was a great dragon which the Babylonians worshipped. Look, said the king to Daniel, you cannot deny that this is the living God, so adore him. But Daniel answered, I adore the Lord my God, for he is the living God. Give me permission, O king, and I will kill this dragon without sword or club. I give you permission, the king said. Then Daniel took some pitch, fat, and hair 
and there he boiled it together and made it into cakes. He put them into the mouth of the dragon, and when the dragon ate them, he burst asunder. This, he said, is what you worship. When the Babylonians heard this, they were angry and turned against the king. The king had become a Jew, they said. He has destroyed Bel, killed the dragon, and put the priest to death. They went to the king and demanded, handed Daniel, hand Daniel over to us, or we will kill you and your family. And when he saw himself threatened with violence, the king was forced to hand Daniel over to them. They threw Daniel into the lion's den. Oh, here's Daniel into the lion's den again. Where he remained six days. In the den were lions and two carcasses and two sheep who had been given to them daily. But now they were given nothing so that they would devour Daniel. In Judea there was a prophet, Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk is a true prophet. Okay. He mixed some bread in a bowl with the stew he had boiled. And of course now, get this, in Judea, because presumably the story takes place in Babylon. All right, so we're talking about a different place now, nearly a thousand miles away. In Judea, there was a prophet, Habakkuk. He was mixing some bread in a bowl with the stew he had boiled and was going to bring it to the reapers in the field. When an angel of the Lord told him, take the lunch to, uh, you have to Daniel in the lion's den at Babylon. But Habakkuk answered, Babylon, sir, I've never seen, and I do not know the den. The angel of the Lord seized him by the crown of his head and carried him by the hair with the speed of the wind. He set him down in Babylon above the den. Talk about stories. Daniel, Daniel, he cried Habakkuk, take the lunch God has sent you. You have, you have remembered me, O God, said Daniel. You have not forsaken those who love you. While Daniel began to eat, the angel of the Lord at once brought Habakkuk back to his own place. On the seventh day, the king came to mourn Daniel. As he came to the den and looked in, there was Daniel sitting there, and the king cried aloud, You are great, O Lord, the God of Daniel, and there is no other beside you. Daniel he took out, but those who had tried to destroy him he threw into the den, and there they devoured, they were devoured in a moment before his eyes. And Daniel lived happily ever after. Nice little story, uh, but I think it's time to get back to reality. This ends sort of our study of the book of Daniel. Now, as much as I've made fun of a lot of the little things in there, uh, I do take it serious in the way that it is truly, the overall message is truly important to everyone because we all 
uh, are dissuaded from honoring God at some point in our lives. Uh, and what has happened in the past is in the past. Let's leave it there. But as we go forward, it's time now to spend uh, some real serious time in thinking about obedience to God and how we can accomplish that and what it means to us. It's, even though it may seem that God may open the door to the things that we don't want to do, uh, that should be for us an occasion really for greater worship because when we obey God and give our total allegiance to him, that is when he showers his many gifts upon us. So I hope you will take that as sort of a message and uh, dwell on it particularly uh, between now and uh, Good Friday, a week from Friday, because that is the most solemn time of our entire liturgical year when Christ himself gave his all for us. And we should then look upon that as a signal for him to say, as he did to the apostles, come, follow me. What I would, what I, first of all, I've got to uh, tell you to, uh, I did make a mistake in typing here. And in that second little uh, paragraph, the last word should be clever, not cleaver. <laughs> but it was an honest mistake, okay? But I'd like to go over some of the things that we've talked about and discuss why. Okay. Apocalyptic language, or apocalypsis. Uh, apocalypsis being the story themselves. Uh, the apocalyptic language is the vehicle by which the story is transmitted. This is... <clears throat> the book of Daniel is the first book to be considered as apocalyptic language, but that truly, that is not really true. Uh, there is apocalyptic language in Ezekiel, which came before Daniel, and a few other books, but they're relatively minor in portion or relative to the entire writings of those books. For example, in the book of Ezekiel, there's a lot of apocalyptic language. In other words, Language that is used to um, describe something different than what the words are saying. I don't know how else to explain that. But in this case, in the book of Daniel, we are talking more about timing and location. Uh, and we are talking about the persecution of the Greeks against the Jewish people. Uh, relative to their uh, faith beliefs. Okay? And so the story line, as it says here, the action behind the scenes of this book, um, 
the time frame, is put back into Babylon. Uh, because Babylon has always been the lowest point of the Jewish experience, that is, uh, from the Old Testament times, from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ. The period within Babylon in the 6th century from 589 B.C. to 539, 38 or 39 uh, B.C., a period of roughly 50 years, uh, was the lowest point in their history. Lower even than the time that they spent as slaves in Egypt. Because in Egypt they were true slaves, but they weren't um, prevented from being true Jews. Now, they had no law, They had uh, no Ten Commandments or anything while they were in Egypt. That was given to them afterwards. So they don't count Egypt as being the lowest point in their life. They were sort of kept there originally for their own good, and they prospered. It wasn't until long after all of the original uh, people involved died out uh, that they were then taken into slavery. So the Jewish people don't look upon Egypt as uh, a lowest point. They look upon it as uh, captivity, but not in the same way that they look upon uh, the time they spent in Babylon. That time was the lowest point because they finally realized that it was their own sins that got them there in the first place. Uh, Their disobedience and their idolatry and apostasy uh, that ran rampant during the whole uh, nearly 500 years before that, from the time of uh, the end of Solomon's reign all the way down uh, to the time of the Babylonian exile. Uh, It was just one... uh, period of sin after another, and it was their own sin uh, and false failures to recognize God as the one true God and obey him that got them there. So that was the low point, and that is why throughout the rest of the Bible, when there is ever a mention of Babylon, it is always uh, a reference back to a very low point in their history a time when they were truly uh, enslaved through their own fault. And you even see that in some of the new writings, particularly in the book of Revelation, which is also very heavily apocalyptic, and there is references to Babylon and the horror of Babylon, uh, which which is referenced uh, rather often at that time. So keep that in mind. Whenever you hear the term Babylon, it is a low point in Jewish history. Okay, brought about by themselves, but God still gave them the ability to turn around and return to Him, and He accepted them back. Uh, and then, of course. When they did return, the temple was 
rebuilt, not to the same degree uh, or same magnificence as Solomon's temple was, uh, but nevertheless it was rebuilt and life went on. But as I said, uh, they took the book of Deuteronomy uh, so literally that they began to revert back almost to the low point they were that brought them to Babylon in the first place, but for entirely different reasons. In other words, the pendulum swung from total evil to recognizing the problem, and then they set out on good, but good can turn into evil when it is done for the wrong reason. And that's exactly what happened. So by the time of Christ, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other uh, Jewish political groups uh, were again worshipping the law rather than the spirit or the God of the law. In the story of Daniel we're seeing that Daniel represents Judaism. Judaism being faced with persecution by Antiochus IV. Uh, And the whole idea, the whole message is obedience to God alone. We saw that in the uh, readings uh, this morning at Mass. Uh, And of course, when we get to the story of Susanna, I think it's a little bit more obvious. And that pretty much brings us up and sums up our whole idea of the purpose of the book of Daniel. Any questions? Jim? There are other religions that very much believe in laying hands on people when they pray for people. Yes. And I had heard somewhere, and I don't know where it was, that only uh, people of hierarchy in the in the Catholic Church are really allowed to do that, like a bishop or somebody like that. And I don't know where I heard that, but is that a true statement? Not to the degree you're thinking of. Yes. The laying on of hands in an official liturgy, particularly of ordination, whether it be ordination of a bishop or a priest or a deacon, the laying on of hands is the outward sign of power being transmitted. Okay? Remember, all the sacraments, the seven sacraments, have an outward sign. Alright? That's the definition of a sacrament, an outward sign instituted instituted by Christ to give grace. Alright. But the laying on of hands is by people say praying with each other or for each other is only a sign of unity. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. yeah. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Uh-uh. No, it's a sign of brotherhood or, or unity. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Jose? What is the greater um, 
influence, did you say? Oh, I see. All right, what you're doing is comparing the the, G, the Greeks of the second century uh, BC with what's going on today. Uh, the atheism that, or the paganism, I would say, which is a better word, that we are heading towards today. Uh, society today in general is heading towards uh, paganism by giving up uh, any respect for God, for true authority, uh, for parents, that kind of, of thing. And that's unfortunate. Uh, but it's the same kind of thing. I can't say one is worse than the other, uh, but it's the same kind of thing. If we don't start turning this uh, ship of, of fools around, uh, we are all headed for damnation, not because we're joining in, but because we're not preventing it. We're letting it happen. Yes. And we all say, woe is me, uh, but we don't do anything about it. Uh, I think just the arguments uh, in the Supreme Court yesterday on the health care law shows that half of the world is uh, thinks that it's great and the other half thinks it's not, but they're not doing anything about it. They're not raising their voices as they should. I don't want to get too much on the political side, but uh, I think you know my feelings. Um, all right. Any other questions? Now what I'd like to do is hear from you what we, what you would like to study uh, beginning in the fall when we start up again, if we start up again. The Johnson, you know, the, uh, <laughs> That's, I'm sorry? The book of Luke? Revelation is out. The reason, the reason being it is too much, it is too much like Daniel. Uh, but I feel that unless you have a very strong background and knowledge of the Old Testament and much of the New Testament, Revelation will not be of, uh, will not, will be much more difficult to understand, let's put it that way. Okay. Um, I would just soon not go into that yet. Let's, let's get some other stuff under our belt before we go into that. Gene? We have a, a difficulty in having some people who have probably enjoyed the big Could you consider a short session that you have presented on that one point in the daytime? Oh, that's something I never thought about, but we can, we can, uh, we can think about that. 
I would like to get, and I think it really is important that we get back to something, though, that is uh, pretty much in line with the Bible itself. Uh, because that's what this is really all for. We all should be striving towards that. First of all, do you know what you're doing Tuesday night in the fall? No. No. It's easier for you to do the same thing. So I've always wanted to study the gospel. And I know it has you doing it. Luke. It's interesting that very few people want to study the Gospel of Mark. Oh, you're doing that now. Well, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels and it leaves out a lot of the details. Yet, it takes the essence of the Gospels and kind of really throws it out at you. So I think you'll find that, that Mark has a lot to say, uh, but it leaves out a lot of other little details. Are you finding that when you study Mark? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's true. That's a, and that's a good reason. Yes, that's a very good thinking. Yes. Uh yes, no. What Percy is saying is that the current uh liturgical year has an emphasis on the gospel of Mark. But next year, starting in uh, November with the first Sunday in Advent, we change to the cycle 3, or C, uh, which is the Gospel of Luke. We are, you know, the liturgical year, excuse me ladies, but, you know, the liturgical year is three years. A, B, and C, and it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where the Gospel emphasis is on each of those three gospel writers. John comes in during Advent, Lent, and Christmas. So what Percy is saying is that we are halfway through the gospel of Mark in the readings from from church. So if we studied the gospel of Luke, then you would be more in tune with that when it starts in uh, November, okay, and of course we start in in the latter part of September, so you would be just behind, or, or I'm sorry, just ahead, just ahead, okay. So that's that's interesting. Yes, Fiona. Psalms by itself is nice. 
but it's prayer. It is hard to teach prayer and keep people interested. I've taught, I've taught Psalms, and the history behind the Psalms is very interesting. Um, but I think we really should get into something a little more meatier that is me- meaningful uh, to us in a broader way. Job? Um, well, see, what you're doing is bringing in all the wisdom books. What what would be interesting is to take all the wisdom books, or six of them, uh, including the Psalms and Job, uh, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiasticus, two separate books. Um, they make up the wisdom books, and taking them as a group, I think, would be very interesting also. Um, but nevertheless, uh, June? We've already, we've already done some of these uh, studies. You've already done Luke. I've done them all many times. Yeah. And you've done Matthew's course. Yes. Uh, I would like to see John, but I think also... John is dead, I'm sorry. You'd <laughs> <laughs> like to study John, or that, that Book of Wisdom might be something else, but I'm preferring John. Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, what do you ladies back there say? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. The Acts of the Apostles. All right, now. The reason I added on there is because Acts of the Apostles was also written by Luke. Okay. And there is sort of a follow-on. So what we might consider is doing the Gospel of Luke next time and right after that, the following time, do Acts of the Apostles. This way you have a long, continuing uh, storyline. Acts, of course, is very different. It gives you uh, a good understanding of the early church and many of the problems that the early church faced before it got into the heavy persecution. All right. It also is, of course, the beginning of St. Paul's career. And that is very helpful there to understand that. Yes, Karen? Okay. Uh, well, let me let me do some heavy duty praying. All right. <laughs> and I will sort of think about that and uh, <laughs> money. How much? <laughs> I'm sorry. We have 
done some of the letters of St. Paul, yes, but uh, not all of them. Uh, St. Paul is rather difficult. I would rather do another gospel. I'd really rather do this, Luke and Acts, before we get into Paul's writings. You'll get a lot of Paul in Acts, okay? And by doing so, you'll see where Paul comes from, all right? Once you get into his letters, he sort of uh, assumes that you know a lot of his background. And that isn't always the case. All right. So I think this combination uh, would be very good. No, no, they're they're much too long. I would do Luke uh, in the fall and Acts in the spring. Yeah. Could could be could possibly. If I'm still around, and you know. we're all still around, yeah. yeah. Okay. The the blessed mother, yes. Yes, what Jose is saying, and that, that's uh, that's interesting. Yes, last night I finished a ten-week series on the saints, and Jose brought up the fact that I only barely mentioned that Mary, the mother of God, is a saint, not a goddess. We don't worship Mary, but she is the queen of all saints. All right, very important. But I didn't bring that up because it in itself could be the subject of a whole series of lectures. Uh, because Mary's role, including her immaculate conception and her assumption, is not fully understood by most people and most Catholics. Um, for example, many people still think that the Immaculate Conception has to do with the birth of Christ. And it does not. Alright? That is the virgin birth. So, the whole understanding of Mary, the role of Mary, and the apparitions of Mary in various places, such as uh, Medjugorje, Lourdes, Fatima, or even uh, Guadalupe. And we did show a DVD uh, two weeks ago on that subject, which I thought was interesting. Uh, but that would be uh, sufficient material for a whole session of lectures in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh-huh. Good, good. So that would be, uh, I think, an interesting subject, but um, I really am leaning towards this myself, okay? I think it would be good for you. Luke, next fall, and Acts in the spring. Okay.
Well, I hope you all got something out of this uh, class, and we'll look forward to uh, doing another one <coughs> beginning in September. What I also would like you to do is to uh, try to recruit others. I think that this room should be full of people, um, not because of uh, what I'm presenting, but because people should be encouraged to study their faith. All right, uh, and understand the importance of sticking up for your faith in spite of persecutions or just snide remarks sometimes uh, by people. I had two young people come to my door uh, just uh, the other day, forgot what day it was, here <coughs> very nicely dressed, a young man and a young woman, and, of course, they were uh, from Jehovah's Witnesses or one of those groups. But you have to admire their zeal. You know? um, and they presented me with a little uh, invitation to some church meeting that they were having soon. And it just happened to be uh, on Holy Thursday. So I told them that I was a devout Catholic and that was Holy Thursday, and I would be in my church, but I commend them on their zeal. You have to. Um, because how many Catholics would go door-to-door to door trying to do that? Uh, very few of us would, you know, welcome that and do it gladly as they do, and the, and the Mormons in the same way. The young men with the white shirts and the black ties. and, and so, uh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've got to admire their zeal and give them credit for that, and I'm sure God does. Okay. All right. Let's end with a prayer. Oh, in which direction? Done. Yes. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for giving us the time uh, to spend studying the book of Daniel and all of the ramifications uh, and meaning from it. Help us then to go forth and defend in our own mind and our heart and our actions and speech our own faith. But also we ask that your blessing be showered upon the Supreme Court today as they ponder and, and uh, consider this health care law that can be, uh, if carried out as dictated, uh, very detrimental to our faith. Help us, give us the strength to stand up for our beliefs in you. And help us also to strengthen our beliefs that we might give ourselves to you and your plan of salvation as you see fit for your honor and glory. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.